It's a different way to open uh, because we're talking about a different topic. Uh, my name is Rich McKinley. I'm the executive pastor. I drew the short straw. Uh, this morning, we're talking about the ugly sweater of Christmas depression. You're welcome. <laughs> Christmas can be a time seasoned with disappointment. I've heard Mike say before that Christmas is the great exaggerator. It takes whatever it is that you're feeling and it kind of turns up the volume. You can probably identify with that, maybe some years more so than others. You can insert your adjective here. I feel what? Right now, just where you are, honestly, between you and God, this is what I'm feeling. I'm guessing a lot of you have got very happy, positive words that you insert on that blank. But for some, and I'm not talking about uh, probably a small group, the holidays are a reminder that things just aren't going the way you wish they would. So this morning we're going to talk about the ugly Christmas sweater I'm going to call the blues. I chose my words carefully and I, I said the blues because I want to make a distinction between feeling sad and a reaction to my circumstances and uh, more serious mental health disorders like major depression or, or clinical depression or seasonal affective disorder, those kinds of things are, are beyond the circumstance of just I'm going to try harder and push through. Um, I'm talking about the blues. When people say things like, I'm just in a funk, right? Have you ever been there? Just nothing seems to peak. Nothing seems to make you happy or make you smile. Everything just seems hard. Well, we're talking about kind of the first floor or two of depression, and to be sure there are many levels of depression, and mental health issues are nothing to be embarrassed about. They're nothing to, to hide uh, or, or pretend that they don't exist. Treatment is as natural to uh, being sick or breaking a bone. You go and you see a doctor when you're injured, most of the mood disorders are resolved or managed best when you uh, seek professional uh, treatment. And so if you're in one of those places where you think that might be you, send me an email, richardexploremcc.org. Um, I have a list of great resources and fantastic counselors that we can put you in, in touch with so that you can work through this difficult um, burden that you, you bear. But right now, this morning... Uh, I want to talk with you about something that impacts all of our mental health, our attitude, uh, negatively, when this one thing gets out of balance. Can you guess what that one thing is? It, it's me. It's you. When we put ourselves in a position that we weren't designed for, things get weird. The more I make myself the center of my universe, the more I will struggle with my emotions. Friends, that is a direct correlation. The more important I make myself, the more I'm going to struggle. Now, I'm not talking about an appropriate sense of self-worth. That's a healthy thing. It's even, it's even biblical. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So, yes, you are valued. Yes, you are dearly 
loved. You are an image bearer of the God of the universe. And he is the point. He is the main thing. His kingdom is the priority. And when we get that out of order, nothing works right. It's very easy for us to find our focus drifting toward our concerns, isn't it? I mean, you've got to live with you. You think about the stuff that you think about. Relationships, work, bills, groceries, gas. Can I go on a vacation? I remember somewhere reading, someone said in a speech, oh, it was Matthew 6, it was Jesus who said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, all this stuff that you worry about, that's a paraphrase, will be added to you as well, will be given to you as well. We get stuck in the worry and the unknown, and that will eat us alive. It'll consume our thoughts, and guess what? Guess what our thoughts drive? Our thoughts drive behavior. And so when I get things out of focus, and when I start thinking about me and my circumstances way more than I ought to, I stop living on mission. And it doesn't take long with me at the center of my universe to recognize this isn't working very well. I can't do this on my own. And oftentimes people begin to feel forgotten and alone. And when people feel forgotten and alone and depressed and you just want someone or something to blame, right? You ever been there? You want to pin it on somebody because pinning it on yourself, man, that just is no fun at all. And people look for somewhere to point and say it's their fault. Have you been there? Peace and contentment, they sound like just mean words. So far from your grasp that it just isn't going to happen, so why are you talking about that? We say things like, why is this happening to me? When will this change? I don't know how much more of this I can take. Where, where are you, God? This is a description for the stage of Jesus' birth. Difficulty, discontentment, oppression, hardship, struggle, silence. And this was when Jesus came. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word and its power to reach into our moment and seem as though you are addressing us as if you were speaking to us person to person. God, we're grateful for the power of that word and its ability to shape our hearts and to uncover the priorities that we ought to be getting behind. And so this morning, God, as we talk about the things that struggle with us, the things that distract us, the things that make us question you and your sovereignty and your plan, God, speak to us and change our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when Paul in Romans 12 was talking about um, thinking of yourselves, you know, not too highly, but thinking, you know, you're, you're an image bearer. So what is rather sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to you?
What does sober judgment mean when I look at who I am and realize that I'm not the priority, I'm not the main thing? I want to read you a little bit from the Christmas story found in Galatians 4. Somebody, somebody in first hour looked at me like I was crazy. It's not in Galatians. Bear with me. I know what I'm doing. I'm a professional. <laughs> Galatians 4, starting at verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, some translations say, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul was unpacking a Roman legal transaction of adoption, and he was trying to make a point because people were familiar with those kinds of terms, and he was explaining how we get folded into the family of God. But there's, a, there's so much meat in that little passage of Scripture. But I want to talk about a couple of things in that. It talks about the timetable that was set by God and it was talking about the fullness of time. That word in the Greek that talks about fullness is called pleroma. And here it's talking about a legal transaction when the date is reached and the terms of the contract are, are managed. It's also uh, applied to uh, a woman who's pregnant. In the pleroma of time, in the fullness of time, at, when it's done, when it's ready, now it's time. Not a, not a moment too soon. God knows what he's doing, and there's a keen sense in the New Testament that what takes place in this brief period of time in which the Lord was on this earth and active in his ministry, this piece of history is what history was created for in the first place. From all eternity, God had created a plan of redemption. His response of Jesus wasn't uh, oh no, look what happened in Genesis 3. I've got to come up with a plan B. God has no plan B. God is sovereign over all. He knows what's next because he's already there. And because he is creating this plan of redemption, it comes to its main fruition in this piece of history, in this person of Jesus. It's not as if things just happened all of a sudden. That God was distracted and was not able to recognize the poor circumstances of the nation of Israel. There was a long period of preparation throughout the whole Old Testament where God was preparing the world for the coming of his son. So during that 400 years of silence where the, the prophets stopped, the, the word... They were waiting on the word. There was nobody praying and telling God about their circumstances. There was nobody reaching out or requesting some instruction. Well, sure, that stuff was happening, but there was silence. And so God 
was doing a thing and people had given up on him. Because this is not surprising. It's the cycle of the history of, of Israel. They walked close with God and they received his blessing. And in his blessing, they had uh, comfort and they enjoyed prosperity. Then they got complacent. Then they ignored God and his rules. And the blessing was removed. And they were under the curses, the consequences of their own decisions. And it was that cycle. And it just kept going and going. And this 400-year period is no different. There, there were times where they were trying to, to seek God's presence. And there were times that they were just being folded into the culture that surrounded them. The Old Testament closes about 400 years before the New Testament begins. And there's a ton of history that happens in that intertestamental period. If you, you were to look in your Bible and you get to the Old Testament, this is what I'm talking about, that 400 years. It goes right here. I would have put more pages, <laughs> but it goes right here in this blank. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't things happening in the history of the world. It doesn't mean that God was doing nothing, that he just, I'm taking a break from you people. You're wearing me out. He was doing his thing. And there's so much history here, and, and I'm kind of a history nerd. I, I ended up like cutting out a bunch of the history that's in here, but you should read sometimes the intertestamental period because it makes it clear as you start looking at all these things and how they're lining up and building on each other that God was busy and sovereign over the history of man. Even people who didn't know, love, or acknowledge him, he was using what was happening to build his kingdom and prepare us for Emmanuel, God with us. So in 445 BC, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt under the leadership of, of Nehemiah. And at this point in redemptive history, um, the children of Israel had gone from being uh, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore to this small little group that was just going to bounce from one political dominating power to the next as free labor. That's who they were and, and what they did. At the end of the Old Testament, we see the Medo-Persian Empire was in the driver's seat, and the Persian Empire lasted until about 331 B.C. when Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, if you didn't know anything about him, that's a pretty uh, fascinating uh, character in history. When he was putting the finishes, finishing touch on his conquest of the Persian Empire, kind of the known world, he was... 24. 24. Alexander is known for being a military genius, a world conqueror, but there's something that you may not know about Alexander, and this is going to kind of go Paul Harvey on you for some of you young people. Google that. It'll make sense to you later. Uh, here's the rest of the story. Alexander the Great uh, was prominent, so he was wealthy, so he was afforded all kinds of uh, educational opportunities, and one of the things that he was able to do was to study under Aristotle. He was a star student, and Aristotle, who wanted to come up with a system that would integrate all the fields of knowledge into a coherent system, he communicated this passion that he had to his star student, Alexander. He wanted to see the scientific community, the philosophical community, uh, come together into some kind of a system that would make sense and show the relationship between all knowledge 
and people. Alexander had a a vision of unifying the ancient world, probably because of his affiliation with Aristotle. And um, he wanted the world to be together culturally. And so he came up with a process that is very important in biblical history. Now, he didn't call it this, but later scholars reached back and called what he was doing the process Hellenization. Hellenization. He wanted to have all the people speak the same language, to have the same philosophy, the same cultural norms. It was all part of his agenda for the conquest, and it was ultimately the reason why the New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew. So in 331, Alexander conquered the Persians, but in 327, as he was dealing with the Babylonians, he died. Upon his death, his kingdom was divided into two groups. You probably don't care, but just for those of you who are history nerds, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, uh, Israel bounced from one brutal dictator to the next. That's the short story. That was their history on that blank page. Just free labor for whoever was in charge. And in this period, there were people who looked at the culture that was being forced on them and the things that were happening to them, and a group wanted to hold on to the traditions of Israel, a group that we know as the Pharisees. They wanted to hold on to their history, their heritage, and obey the, the law that they found in the books of Moses. As their culture was being eclipsed by the influence of Greek cultures, um, they came onto the scene zealous for the covenant that the Jewish people had been a part of. But and we see, when we see the Pharisees coming on the scene in the New Testament, that noble purpose for which they gathered and, and, and operated had been lost, and they were a group of people who were deeply self-righteous, doing the external things that could be seen by other people, hypocritical and deeply opposed to Jesus and his mission. Well, 167, after abolishing all forms of Jewish uh, worship, the current bad guy on the scene, Antiochus, uh, sacrificed a pig on the altar. And that just blew fuses in Israel. And so um, a, a father, uh, Matthias, and his five sons rose up to uh, fight against the policies of Antiochus shortly after the father died and placed his third son in charge, Judas, Judas Maccabeus. Do you know what Maccabeus means? It, it, it means the hammerer. <laughs> like, that was awesome. Probably had it tattooed on his bicep, you know. Um, but uh, they went in and, and fought because they couldn't bear what was happening to their, their history, their heritage, and, and their God. And so in 164, uh, they had some... Uh, they gained some ground uh, by 142, uh, gained full freedom. Uh, they celebrated what uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, had accomplished, the rebuilding and uh, use of the temple again. Uh, they celebrated in December. Anybody know? Hanukkah. They still celebrate that to this day. Well, um, their, their liberation lasted until 63 um, Palestine was conquered again by Romans. In about 40 BC, uh, they were assigned a king. Uh, two Romans named Octavius and Mark Anthony put a man who was uh, an Eduan uh, chieftain over them. His name was Herod the Great. Herod was a brutal, 
cruel, vicious puppet king. And Israel was left groaning once again under foreign rule, living in the absence of God's blessings, suffering the consequences of their own behavior, the curse that they walked in. Where was God? Why all this pain? And maybe you have felt like that before. This has gone on long enough. God, if, if you're there, why aren't you doing anything? But as historians look back at history, they see a very strange thing. Even, even historians who aren't believers look at the timing, the pleroma, the fullness of time when Jesus was sent into this world. And they, they understand some very interesting things are present. There is largely one language that's saturating the known world, Greek, which made communication pretty easy. The Hebrew scriptures, there were Jews who couldn't read Hebrew, but they could read Greek. And so it's during this time period, this 400 years of silence, that we get what we call the Septuagint, where the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek. What is, what's the big deal? The big deal is the whole world can now read the history of God's people. They can see what God has been doing. They, they experienced a time of peace that made travel pretty easy. The, the Romans were great at showing off their conquests, and so they connected it via roads. Travel was easy and safe. They lived under a time of peace. There was a, a, a fairly common language and if you were going to pick a spot in history to launch the gospel message, to, to send Jesus to be God in the flesh, it looks like God knows exactly what he's doing. They say to find a period of history after that short window of opportunity to open again, it doesn't even come close, but about 1,500 years later, something sort of similar became available. So God, in the fullness of time, who wasn't waiting on men to do things so that, he wasn't held up by our calendar and our watch and our goals and our timetable. God is sovereign over everything and everyone, and he will accomplish his purpose. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now, we ran through a little bit of history. But the birth of Jesus coming as the Messiah was remarkable. God was doing a thing when it seemed like he was on vacation. God was uh, building a process so that the world could know. And he's inviting you today to be a part of that same very story. You know, in Galatians 4 it says, We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Sounds like us, doesn't it? But when the set time had fully come, in the fullness of time when it was right, God sent his son, born of a woman. Why does it say that? 
He was born of a woman. Doesn't say anything about the man because it broke the, the, the seed, that uh, corruptible nature, that sin nature that's alive in every one of us. Jesus didn't have that. He was sent by uh, God, born of a woman, born under the law, had the same rules to abide by that everybody else at that time had to deal with to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption and sonship. This is where the Christmas story begins to pretty up that ugly sweater we're all wearing. The world wants to tell you that you're enough, that you just have to cut through all the stuff because you're an image, you're made in the image of God. You are, you are, you are. The gospel message it says you aren't. And, and, and a lot of that frustration that you feel, that difference between expectation and reality, you can't close that gap. And that's why our heart breaks, and that's why we give up on God. Because our best efforts still fall short. Here's the good news. You don't have to be enough. You don't have to get it right. You don't have to deal with the pressure of winning. Because Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he makes us sons and daughters. So would you, this season, push yourself back from this table of frustration and pain and accept this gift that cost Jesus his life? Would you accept what he's done for you so that you can enjoy sonship? So that you can be a child of the king? You know, we, we say in our, our men's group, God is not so concerned with our current happiness as he is our coming holiness. Your circumstances, they might be hard. And friends, I love you, they may not change much in this world. But you can hold on to the truth of who Jesus is. And you can be changed. Not because of your best efforts, not because you tried again, but because he's enough. And he'll do it for you if you'll accept it. Each week, we pause and we remember that gift. And I suppose it'd be easy for it to become just another part of the service. And maybe for some, it is. And if that's you this morning, just set it down. <laughs> but if you'll remember today what it is that Jesus is doing, the love that he's offered you, the strength that he's afforded you, the purpose that he speaks into your existence, our light and momentary afflictions on the scale are outweighed by his eternal glory. And that's the gift that Jesus gave us when he gave up his body to a brutal, 
vicious, violent death. He said, I'll take your punishment and we remember. God's word says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it was bulls and goats and rams and lambs until the pleroma, the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent his son to shed his blood to make us sons and daughters. And we remember. Father, thank you for your patience, for your wisdom, for your strength and sovereignty, that you don't cave to our, our, our cries and our whines and our whims, that, Father, you are faithful to your plan. And, God, one day we'll see it all for what it is, and we will worship. And so, God, here in this place, at this time, with just understanding in part, we know you're beautiful and powerful and loving and kind and just and right. And our response here in this place is to worship. We ask for strength as we do. In Jesus' name.